Just to hear you breathing Watch you smile while you were sleeping While you're far away and dreaming I could spend my life in this sweet surrender This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. So today we're here to study Bellator 222 and also Tyson Fury versus Tom Schwartz. First off, let's start with the Bellator 222 main event. Rory McDonald versus Neiman Gracie for the Bellator Welterweight Grand Prix. So it's two different titles. It's the Welterweight title, which Rory McDonald was defending against Gracie. And also they're competing for a million dollar prize in the Welterweight Grand Prix so in looking at Rory McDonald versus Neiman Gracie, they're both six feet tall, but McDonald has three inches over Neiman Gracie. Ultimately, Rory McDonald won a comfortable unanimous decision. It was the all-around MMA fighter in Rory McDonald, who's not just competent everywhere, but really good everywhere, versus Neiman Gracie, who's kind of a throwback to the old school style versus style kind of fighter, where he's a specialist. He's mostly a submission grappler. Being a Gracie, would you expect anything else? But unlike previous Gracies, he does seem to have other skills. Paul, what did you see in this fight? What I saw was a classic Rory McDonald performance, and it was much needed after somewhat of a snooze fest against John Fitch. Now, Rory being the champion has more pressure, not just to win, but win emphatically. And he came to fight in this matchup against Neiman Gracie. Both Gracie and McDonald are orthodox fighter. And I believe the difference maker was McDonald's very disciplined jab. There's a lot of feints and movements where the jab will go up and down and not just stick to the head, but also to the body because he was constantly targeting Gracie's midsection, Gracie would have to overreact and drop his hands slightly. And it gave McDonald the opportunity to score with overhands and hooks whenever he did that. Now, every now and then, McDonald will also throw a high kick behind the punches to keep Gracie guessing. This was similar to his performance against Tyron Woodley and Paul Daly. Now, within round one, McDonald starts adding in straights to remind Gracie that there's a secondary threat. And similar to Robert Whitaker, his constant fainting and hand movement keeps Gracie guessing. And when Gracie is able to close the distance, McDonald's head movement isn't bad, all things considered. And being aware of the takedown threat, McDonald's is hesitant to do a lot of checking when it comes to kicks. And Gracie takes full advantage of that. After round one is over and McDonald goes over to his corner, he does admit to Faraz that his leg is hurt a little bit. But because this is a five-round fight, McDonald is patient and he is in no need to make a dominating performance. 
It's a tournament and winning with minimal damage is key. Now, in the second round, a beautiful takedown to half guard gives Gracie what I believe one of his best moments in the fight. But McDonald has at this point seen it all and calmly moves out once he realizes that his knee isn't in danger of hyperextension. Now, the composure of McDonald keeps him in the fight and it eventually lets him turn the tables on Gracie and he ends up in Gracie's full guard. While he's in Gracie's full guard, McDonald will posture up and try for strikes. And Gracie smartly goes into grappling mode and keeps McDonald's head down and tries to tie up McDonald's wrist. When McDonald will strike you in ground and pound position, it's very reminiscent of GSP. And McDonald will shelf Gracie's right leg up to keep Gracie from utilizing his hips, which is one of the things that GSP was known to do against grappling specialists. Now, while on top, McDonald can strike you and eat up time, essentially winning the round. And it's essentially what he did in round two. As the fight goes on, Rory will add things on top of his jabs, whether it's the straights, the hooks, the overhands, and it keeps Gracie guessing. And mixing this in with elbows and spinning kicks can work a treat in distracting an opponent. To go about your point, Sam, when... You talk about Rory being a complete fighter. He's not scared to engage Gracie on the ground. And in fact, the beautiful clinch takedown lands McDonald straight into side control. And he can work in punches just like Fedor via elbows. And Gracie is no slouch and he's able to get full guard again. But we also have to remember that McDonald has been in these kind of positions before with grappling elites like Damian Maya. Now, one of the things that Gracie was able to do very well was threaten with submissions, especially for those split seconds when McDonald got too comfortable. And what surprised me, although it shouldn't have, is McDonald's defense on the ground. You could see that at no point are they reactions to things that are based in panic. It's things that he's drilled over and over again because at no point does he panic and you could see that white belt spaz of oh no I gotta get out it's more of okay he's going for an arm bar I need to make sure that I spin around my elbows not in danger and I'm in a good position to shimmy my way out now the best round that Gracie had was round five and in this fight there's no way that Gracie wasn't aware especially with Henzo screaming at him that he's down on the cards And round five was Gracie's best round. And it showed in the judge's decision when they gave McDonald 49-46. While on the ground, McDonald knew that I just need to defend myself from here. And I need to make sure that I don't get caught because I've essentially won this fight now. I just need to hang on for five more minutes. While he's mounted and in terrible positions, McDonald makes sure not to make simple mistakes that Gracie's previous opponents had. One of the things I like that the commentating booth pointed out was instead of giving Gracie one of his arms to go for an easy armbar or arm triangle, McDonald would keep his hands low and posture through to Gracie's hips to make sure that he can at least recover at the very least half guard and work from there. You could tell that McDonald's difference maker is a jab. It's crisp and it's one of his most reliable weapons. And I think Gracie's grappling is great, 
But in the context of MMA, it has to be adjusted slightly to make it more effective. A lot of what McDonald did on the ground in round five reminded me of what Robbie Lawler does, where he will get the butterfly guard, hang on, force Gracie to make the first move and try to get a better position. Now, a last minute submission attempt by Gracie is unsuccessful. And McDonald is able to show his all-around MMA prowess. And now he'll meet Douglas Lima in the Bellator Welterweight Grand Prix Final. Sam, what are your thoughts? So this fight was billed as new school versus new school. Because they were kind of portraying Neiman Gracie as a new school of Gracie fighter. Where they're not just the old school coming in with really awful striking, kicks to the shin and then just looking for takedowns. He's supposed to represent a more complete fighter. But I think it's more accurate to say it's new school versus newer school. 2.0 versus 3.0. You have in Neiman Gracie a specialist with MMA skills versus full MMA. Initially, Gracie did some great work with his jab and low kicks, and also mixing in his hooks with his level changes to draw away McDonald's defenses. And also, he was doing good work building off the jab by throwing the jab, doubling, tripling, and then also turning the jab over into a hook whenever McDonald was defending the jab statically. So he was hooking around the guard. Gracie's offensive boxing fundamentals were sound. He's definitely been working with someone who's all about the basics. But defense in boxing takes a lot longer to build. And McDonald is a hard fighter to avoid getting hit because like Paul mentioned, he has such a precision jab. And once he starts landing the jab, he's going to land three or four other punches. And already in the first round, Gracie was starting to bite on McDonald's feints. And also his defense, instead of the classic boxing slip or forearm shield, he was pulling his head straight back. Now, even though he was biting on feints and pulling his head straight back, there definitely was still a sound striking game plan. Because Gracie was even looking to catch McDonald's kicks. And even if you don't catch a kick, the fact that that's what you're aiming for will make your opponent cautious about throwing a kick. And this left Gracie with only the hands to worry about. So even with his defense not being as good as his offense, he was still doing some good work. But coming out in the second round, the game plan must have been, okay, now we felt him out and did some good work on the feet. We didn't make him really scared of the takedown. So now let's start going for takedowns. And this is a very not UFC tournament days strategy, but kind of more the Pat Militich, Matt Hughes era of game planning, which is where Henzo came from, that era. And so Gracie became very single-minded about just going for takedowns and securing the takedown, which is a shame because he was doing good work standing, especially with his calf kicks. Like Paul mentioned, that was really starting to bother Rory McDonald. Now, that doesn't mean that Gracie had abandoned all striking, but he wasn't striking for damage per se, but more striking just to set up takedowns. So in the second round, he came in with smothering strikes to get a trip takedown. And from there, there's a scramble. A lot of times, McDonald, even though he's good in a lot of areas, is better than his opponent at their specialty. So in the past, he's fought strikers. Striking is their specialty, and McDonald is good all around. But with that said, McDonald's striking was still better than the specialist striking because there were aspects of the ground fighting 
the grappling, that McDonald was better than Gracie. And but to see how good Gracie was, McDonald went for a leg lock, and Gracie went for his own leg lock. Initially, it was a heel hook. Then he converted to a foot lock. Then McDonald spins, so Gracie transitions to a knee bar. But then McDonald remains cool and pushes Gracie off to free himself. And so now that they were free, rather than trying to wrestle, there's this desperation about Gracie to finish the fight as quickly as possible, to get it on the ground any way possible and submit, even if that means sacrificing position. And this is only round two. This isn't even round five yet. So from standing, Gracie gets a body lock and rather than tripping or a legitimate takedown, tries to drag McDonald to the ground. As they go down, what Gracie would have preferred was for both of them to land on their side. And from there, I assume Gracie would have tried to take the back and finish. But instead, as they are falling, McDonald steps over Gracie so that McDonald can be on top. Now, throughout this fight, from guard, Gracie was mostly neutralized by Rory McDonald using the can opener again and again. And if you don't know what the can opener is, it's where you grab your opponent by the back of their head as if you're doing a tight clinch, but you're sitting up from their guard. But just like the tight clinch, you pull on their head. And this really affects their mobility. Now, so long as you're careful not to get arm barred or get submitted by anything silly, you're pretty safe. It's a move that John Danaher brought back. So it's interesting also in the ground fighting aspect in that Rory McDonald was using a lot of John Danaher moves, John Danaher being a Henzo Gracie instructor, whereas Neiman Gracie was using Henzo Gracie moves. And there's always been a bit of that, let's call it office politics happening at Henzo Gracie's. We can even go back to Matt Serra versus GSP. Now in round three, with Gracie, rather than building off his jab again, there was that same sense of desperation to get the fight to the ground. And this has been a problem with other Gracie's as well. Rather than fully buying into MMA, they do aspects of MMA to eventually turn it into a submission grappling match. Basically, a Gracie challenge match. If you've ever seen Gracie's in action where they do those dojo fights, that's what they want. To prove the superiority of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. So, instead of doing all the things you need to do, like make Rory McDonald miss, pressure McDonald to the cage, have him bite on feints, and so forth to get into the range to take a wrestling shot, Gracie shoots from distance. That shooting from distance is also a Gracie trademark because... They're not setting up their takedowns. There's always that familial desperation shot whenever you see a Gracie fight. And again, it's McDonald who lands on top and Gracie eating a lot of ground and pound. But on the ground, Gracie had much better head movement and slipping than he did standing. Now, having been foiled by the can opener so many times, Gracie grabs McDonald's glove, which is the only reliable handle that won't slip and goes for an armbar, then grabs McDonald's leg to go for an armbar sweep, also known as a flower sweep. I was a bit surprised by this because normally a flower sweep is hard to get because people don't post their leg at the highest levels for you to sweep. But it was like a trigger. Since McDonald's arms were around Gracie's neck, the moment McDonald posted, Gracie automatically went for the sweep. Now from here, McDonald bellies down to avoid being swept and has his right hand on Gracie's chest to shove him off to create space, then get back up. 
But once Gracie felt that hand on his chest, it triggered his next response, which was to go for a belly down armbar. But to secure the armbar, just as he did with the flower sweep, you want to grab your opponent's leg so they don't step over and escape. Gracie instead went all in on the armbar, using both hands, which allowed McDonald to step over. Not so differently from when he stepped over when Gracie went for the sacrifice throw. And from stepping over, he ended up on top and was able to free his arm. From there, as Gracie was rolling to recover, he shot up a triangle, but McDonald pushed his chest through to be in Gracie's guard. McDonald was seeing everything, and if he wasn't, he was reacting quick enough to recover. So what I've noticed so far in this fight is that Gracie's attacks are more opportunistic than they are systematic. And also, though Gracie was doing good boxing work and some nice leg kicks, I didn't get a sense of complete and cohesive MMA skills. Like he's good here and he's good here, but not good at the whole thing overall. But his ground game is so solid, like Damian Maya, he can go really far just with that specialty. Especially in Bellator, which doesn't have the same depth at 170 as UFC does. Then in round four, Gracie tries stance switching. And as I said, he has good boxing fundamentals, but the defense isn't quite there. And if it's not quite there from your primary stance, it's only worse from your non-primary stance. So he starts eating straights from Rory McDonald from southpaw stance. Now, as Gracie goes for a shot, he doesn't care if it's set up or not. He just wants scrambles. He's relentless about trying to get McDonald to the ground one way or another. And as I mentioned about him, Gracie is all about triggers and opportunities. As he's trying to drag McDonald to the mat, McDonald puts his hands down to stay standing. That's all Gracie needs to jump on his back. To stop McDonald from standing back up and shucking Gracie off, Gracie grabs the double wrist lock on McDonald's arm to stop him from posting. This forces McDonald to put his weight onto his feet. Now from here, Gracie grabs McDonald's leg while still on his back to fold him over and break him down. But McDonald again stays calm and tries to slide Gracie off of him. But even while Gracie is sliding off, he grabs McDonald's arm and drags it across his body. A Russian two-on-one. Now from here, Gracie can go for an armbar again or retake the back. But McDonald, much like his stepovers and can openers, was beating Gracie's hips and beating his posture. You can beat a lot of these kind of jujitsu tricks with better biomechanics. And once all the opportunities are over, and throughout the fight, whenever McDonald wasn't giving Gracie any opportunities, it was Gracie on bottom eating ground and pound. Now, round five was Gracie's best round as Paul mentioned. And again, he was doing good work with calf kicks. And I really wish he would have stayed on that. But again, instead, he goes for a shot, trying to drag McDonald to the ground. But this time, he spun Rory McDonald and tripped him over. It was Gracie on top. And from there, Neiman Gracie worked from half guard to mount. Now, Gracie did a good job of maintaining mount, which looked a lot worse than it did. Because the best way to keep a mount is to create no space but you can't strike unless you create space. So it was mostly Gracie trying to maintain mount, switching from cross ankles to wide knees to pinching knees and also hand fighting Rory McDonald. Eventually, McDonald recovered to butterfly hooks without taking much damage. 
Now, time was running out. Gracie was looking to pass. But at this point, and really just throughout the fight, he needs to use these kind of opportunities to start hitting McDonald and try to finish him with strikes or at least just damage him. And also, Gracie was trying to pass with an overhook, which works well with the friction and handles of the gi. But I don't know if I've seen that much in MMA. In MMA, from that position, you usually see pummeling, underhook, strike. Pummeling, underhook, strike. Then once they're hurt a bit, keep striking. And from there, if you see an opportunity to pass, then pass. And once you pass, look for the crucifix. But either way, the pass doesn't work. And eventually, Gracie goes for another leg lock in a Hail Mary submission attempt. But McDonald gets out, and then it's more ground and pound. So here's the thing. MMA is not a grappling match with strikes. And it's not a kickboxing match with ground fighting. MMA is MMA. Full stop. And it needs to be respected as such. And the name of the game in MMA is damage. Who can do more damage more often? And to do this, you need to tire your opponent out without tiring yourself out. You also need to be in superior positions so you can do damage without being damaged. But Gracie went all in on submissions. And as I mentioned previously, leading up to this fight, they hyped the fight up by saying the Gracies haven't really done well in MMA ever since it evolved from style versus style to just mixed martial arts. And so Neiman Gracie was going to break that streak of no modern MMA champions in the Gracie family. But he still does very much fight like a style versus style fighter. And I think there's a lot of pressure as a Gracie to fight like that and to train with your family. Imagine the family politics if a Gracie didn't want to train with the family and went to AKA or ATT or Jackson Wink. Or if they didn't go for submissions and fought more like DC or Habib. Or what if a Gracie, rather than going for submissions off their back, try to stand up? What kind of drama would that cause? Or if they fought with no BJJ at all, just striking, clinching, and wrestling. And that's the blessing and the curse of being a Gracie. You get a leg up on your BJJ training, but you also don't have as much freedom as other fighters. For most fighters, it's normal to change camps, to change styles. Everybody was asking for that with Kevin Lee, to evolve and do what's best for you as an individual. Gracies can't do that. And if you look at the fight, there definitely seemed to be a striking game plan, especially in round one. But as far as the ground, rather than a game plan or strategy, it seemed more like tricks. It was the old, get it to the ground and finish him any way possible. And MMA strategy has evolved so much further than that. Now, does he need to improve every part of MMA to do well in Bellator? Probably not. But that's always been the Gracie attitude. Why change what's not broken? But that's the opposite mindset of MMA, which is always about Look for what's broken, then change it. Now let's move on to the Bellator co-main event. Chael Sonnen versus Lyoto Machida. Machida is the man who KO'd Chael Sonnen's mentor, Randy Couture, in the second round, sending Couture into retirement. Now Sonnen was looking for revenge, and much like the story of his career, ended up also being stopped in the second round, and also retiring. And just like Randy Couture, Sonnen's final bout was contested at light heavyweight against Lyoto Machida. But this time in Machida, 
Sonnen wasn't fighting someone bigger, even though this was at 205. Both are former middleweights, similar in size and also nearly identical in age. One is the Southpaw karate fighter, and the other, an in-your-face wrestler boxer. So it's interesting to note that this is technically the third fighter that Machida has retired. The first being Randy Couture, the second being Vitor Belfort, and now Chael Sonnen. And they've all been knockouts in the second round. Now, with this being MMA, retirements don't stay permanent. Any of these guys can come back. And Vitor Belfort actually announced back in March that he signed with one championship. But as far as announcements post-fight, Chael Sonnen would be the third so-called victim of the Machida second round knockout tour. Now, Machida does a lot of things that fighters have trouble with initially. But because he's been fighting for so long, the game plan is out there. Another interesting tidbit is seven of Machida's last opponents have been Southpaw. Sonnen is no different. It gives Machida a sense of familiarity. And in this fight, Sonnen might have felt pressure to not just make sure that Machida never finds his speed and timing, but also make sure that he gets closer and closer to the cage. He makes it ugly by getting in Machida's face. And Machida has a hard time with gauging distance and making sure he can use his lateral movements. Now, Machida needs to create space where he can read the terrain and find the optimal range to inflict the most damage. His timing is still one of his best assets. And in the early minutes of round one, it's going a bit rough. Now, both are former light heavyweight fighters, and at middleweight, they're on the larger size, but here they look a little bit more natural. Now, compared to the Gustafsons and the John Jones, they're obviously on the smaller side, but you could tell that they didn't have to cut as much, although there are reports that Sonnen struggled with the weight cut. Now, by the halfway mark of round one, Machida gets a read on when Sonnen will swarm in, and it's not good. Not to mention the southpaw stance that Sonnen has eventually becomes a liability since it leaves him open to body kicks and his defensive holes are apparent. Now, a beautiful time knee by Machida puts Sonnen flat on his back and Machida swarms in on the offense. Just in case Sonnen didn't go down, Machida's foot placement after throwing the flying knee is in perfect position to go for a trip, similar to how he took down Kazuhiro Nakamura. Now, Sonnen does just enough to survive by utilizing his guard work, which we haven't seen in a long time. Now, by the time the second round rolls around, Machida has figured out Sonnen's timing, and that's what makes a difference. When you give Machida time to figure out your offense, he can use his lifetime of karate striking to figure out the best strikes to draw from, and he's more accurate than most, especially when it comes to timing. Now, in recent times, Machida's has slowed down and opponents have figured out that pressure, discipline striking, feints, and ring cutting are what you need to beat Machida. When you slip in any of these areas like Sonnen did, Machida can capitalize and remind you why he was able to rattle off such an impressive winning streak early on in his career. When you think about Machida's victories over current Bellator champions Ryan Bader and Gegard Mousasi. They were fighters who either rushed in 
or were too passive, respectively. And this isn't how you beat him. How Machida does in a rematch against Ryan Bader and Musasi will be interesting to see. But for now, Machida is enjoying a slight resurgence in Bellator. So let's talk about Chael Sonnen. When he came out, the game plan was pretty clear. It was pace and pressure. Pretty straightforward. Not a lot of craft, but that makes sense because you're not going to outcraft Machida. However, in the past, people have been able to batter Machida with leg kicks. But instead, Sonnen walked forward, straight onto knees and punches. But for his willingness to walk through fire, he was able to clinch Machida and pin him up against the fence. If you've ever seen Machida fight, this is not an easy thing to do. From here, Sonnen was trying to take Machida down. And eventually, he's able to shuck off Machida's overhook and get Machida onto all fours. Much like Neiman Gracie did against Rory McDonald. But unlike Gracie, Sonnen is not the jiu-jitsu whiz. So Sonnen half-heartedly goes for the back, but he doesn't want to lose position. And so eventually, Machida escapes. Then it's more of the same. Sonnen walking onto Machida's strikes. But here's something I noticed, and Paul already alluded to this. In a closed stance, where your feet are parallel to your opponents, your lead foot faces their back foot. This is the feet positioning Chel Sonnen was expecting, so that he could take a penetration step between Machida's legs and go for a double leg. Chel Sonnen, also kind of like Daniel Cormier, has a habit of slipping just to one side. For Sonnen, that happens to be his left as he's throwing his right hook. What Sonnen fails to realize here also is Machida has switched his stance to orthodox to counter Sonnen, and so Machida catches him with an intercepting flying knee as he's slipping to the left. So if Machida was in southpaw, his normal stance, he would have hit Sonnen with his left knee. But since Machida switched his stance, he caught him with his right knee. But Sonnen was slipping towards his left, onto Machida's right knee. Machida has been watching tape on Sonnen. So Sonnen drops after the knee. And from here, he's taking a lot of shots from Machida. But he's able to stand up and the round ends. So now in between the rounds, what adjustments will Sonnen make? And really, not much. I'm not even certain if either he or his corner realized that Machida was fighting from orthodox stance to time that knee. So he came out pressuring Machida again, and he gets Machida up against the fence. But this time, one new wrinkle, a gimmicky move where Sonnen feints with his left, sticking it straight out to his side like a sideways punch, hoping that it would distract Machida. It's kind of like a Three Stooges type move. Which, like I said, Sonnen will do. And from there, Sonnen ducks again to his left, right onto a flying right knee. And again, Sonnen gets dropped and he eats more punches, but this time the referee has seen enough and stops the fight. Now, Sonnen had a decent enough game plan going into this fight. He was backing Machida up and getting to clinch positions and pinning Machida up against the fence. All things that are hard to do. What he didn't do that someone like Henry Cejudo is really good at is between round adjustments. You can't stick to a game plan if your opponent has adjusted to it. No more slipping against Machida. No more ducking for takedowns. 
the kicks and knees from Machida are too risky. Pressure him and box him up. Force Machida just to use hand techniques. And then implement the rest of your game plan of pressuring, clinching, grinding, and takedowns. Now, in the past, coming up with a game plan at all was once revolutionary. Now, it's about game plans plus being able to make adjustments between the rounds. The old guard, which Sonnen is from, doesn't know how to do that. And eventually, all the older models of fighters retire. And that's what Chael Sonnen did. Now, we're going to talk about Aaron Pico, but let's save him for last and move on to boxing. Tyson Fury versus Tom Schwartz. It was a pretty short fight. The fight ended when Tyson Fury, a.k.a. Tyson Creed, a.k.a. Apollo Fury, punished Tom Schwartz to the point where the referee stopped the fight with just a couple of seconds left in the second round. Post-fight, he began singing. Did you know that Tyson Fury was such a good singer? I did not know he was withholding such talent. So we got a two-for-one. We got a boxing match and a concert. He was all entertainment going into this fight. He wore that custom-made suit where it had pictures of, I guess, every boxing champion in the heavyweight division. He came out dressed like Apollo Creed, coming out to James Brown, living in America. He sang, and he also unveiled the extra-tall boxing stool. The way they covered that stool, it was kind of like an infomercial. Like I thought at the end there was going to be a 1-800 number where I could buy this stool. So with that said, it was just all Tyson Fury. What is there to say about Tom Schwartz? So Tom Schwartz is a solid heavyweight or cruiserweight from Germany. And it's unfortunate to say, but it looks as if just like Deontay Wilder's last opponent, Brazil, they were brought in to lose to set up an eventual larger-than-life rematch between the two. Now, as you mentioned in our Discord channel, Sam, both Fury and Wilder did what they were supposed to do and smashed through their opponents. But it was Anthony Joshua who didn't keep up his end of the bargain and lost to Andy Ruiz. He fucked up. It's one thing if you lose a close decision because then the boxing gods or the judges in this case will just award the fight to you and then it's business as usual. But he got hit so hard and so bad that the ref eventually had to say, you know what, you can't continue. And if all things play out, Ruiz and Joshua will rematch, possibly in the States, and we're going to see a fight between the trinity of heavyweights play out sometime in 2020, 2021. But Ruiz can still play spoiler. I still think among the lot, Fury is probably the most technical of all of them. And his educated jab, his leveraging of guard and his ability to constantly bombard you with shots that you're not familiar with is reminiscent of fighters like Vasily Lomachenko. But obviously there's discrepancies among them. And the way he moves is so herky-jerky. It's really hard to gauge where he's going to come from, what kind of angles he's going to present, where the punches are going to come from. And also the herky-jerky movement messes up your read of his timing. Like when somebody's dancing, what makes them herky-jerky? It means they're off beat and you don't know what beat they're dancing to. And that's kind of the same deal with Tyson Fury's movement. You can't gauge his timing because his timing keeps changing. And like Paul mentioned, Tyson Fury is really good with his jab. And in this fight, 
it was really more of a demonstration of Tyson Fury's skill set, kind of like an old school martial arts demonstration where you take one of your students and beat up on them just to showcase your skills. That's kind of what it looked like. This is no diss to Tom Schwartz, but that's just what it ended up looking like. Tyson Fury in the fight, especially in the first round, building off the jabs, just boxing fundamentals. But then in round two, it's like, damn, once he went southpaw, it was all over for Schwartz. And Schwartz, fighting a southpaw Fury, didn't know what to do other than to cover up. It reminded me a bit of Valentina Shevchenko versus Jessica I, where it was two fighters that were on two different levels, plus the fighter on the lower level not being able to adjust to a southpaw opponent. All that equals second round TKO. It's not surprising to see Schwartz be surprised by the southpaw stance, but it was surprising to see how quickly the end came for Schwartz once Tyson Fury switched stances. Because in round one, Fury still had a lot of volume, but the forearm guard and moving around and slipping, all of that was, for the most part, keeping Tom Schwartz safe. In round two, he did the same thing, but against the southpaw, it just was not working. So after this fight, Tyson Fury solidified himself as the top of the heap in the new boxing heavyweight foursome with Andy Ruiz in the mix. And that makes it more interesting. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. When Conor McGregor fought Floyd Mayweather, that did not help MMA. That did not help the UFC. It helped Conor McGregor, but really, it reignited people's interest in boxing, especially for a lot of MMA fans. A lot of MMA fans had given up on boxing. And then all of a sudden after that, you're like, hey, we just watched Floyd versus Connor. That was pretty interesting. That was pretty entertaining. Now let's watch Triple G versus Canelo. And then from there, the momentum just kept on building. And so with MMA and with boxing, it's a really good era for combat sports fans. So now to our final segment. We occasionally will do an episode called What the Fuck Happened To? And we'll talk about a fighter who used to be really good and then went on a downward spiral. And we try to break down what happened. Why did their career go down? But I think for Aaron Pico, rather than what the fuck happened to him, it's more like why didn't his career ever take off like it was supposed to? I think that's an accurate assessment. And he still has time to turn it around. So it might just be what the fuck is going on with Aaron Pico. After having established himself as a world-class wrestler, and that's not just hyperbole, because he's been all over the world wrestling and representing the U.S., he also has a boxing background, being one of Miguel Cotto's training partners, and he also won titles in amateur pancreation. So by all means, Aaron Pico was supposed to be the next generation, somebody who has it all, who is superb in all areas and can mix it together to become a complete fighter. Now, I think one of the problems might be that although he is world class in all areas, the transitions is what he's struggling the most with because you could be a great wrestler, great striker. But if you're not able to pin down the transitions between the two, this is where you're going to get caught. If you examine his latest loss, 
he was doing very well in the grappling department, especially after switching to Jackson Wink for this fight. But a moment's hesitation where he got clipped with the knee signaled the beginning of the end. It can happen to anyone, but the problem is with Pico, it's happening more often than not. Now, when you look at his knockout losses standing, he gets clipped during exchanges and brawls that he has no business being a part of. We see this with Cody Garbrandt, where he's clearly the better boxer, but he'll still get into brawling exchanges where it's 50-50. I don't care how good of a striker you are, when you exchange the boxing gloves for four-ounce ones, then it just matters who gets clipped first. And Pico might not have the veteran savvy to engage in brawls on his own term. He might get caught in when opponents get too close and he figures, I'm going to do it now. I have the better boxing pedigree. Sometimes your pedigree isn't enough to scare off opponents, especially if they think, well, we have a 50-50 shot here. I'm going to go for it. But if I stay in striking range, I'm going to get eaten up by the jab and I'm going to get hit with the body shot. At least if we're close and brawling, I can still clip you. And when you're wrestling, you might think, okay, you're a better grappler than me. I'm getting taken down. But if I time a knee correctly, it doesn't matter how good your grappling is. I'm still going to knock you out. And I think the transitions in between is what's hurting Aaron Pico. When you look at fighters like DC or Henry Cejudo, they're able to transition not in one phase to another, but treat MMA as a whole, as we've talked about. And maybe that's what Aaron Pico needs to focus on. So not everyone needs amateur fights for their MMA career or even regional fights. But Aaron Pico seems like someone who does. As you mentioned, he did a lot of pancreation. But that's basically like Eddie Bravo's combat submission grappling. And that's not going to get you ready for something as big as Bellator. And so he's somebody who really would have benefited from doing that. And that's the thing a lot of MMA fighters who looked at Aaron Pico's career told me. They said, man, just watching his fights and the way he's losing, he definitely looks like somebody who'd benefit from fighting on smaller shows, fighting some amateur fights. But he didn't get that chance. He jumped right into the deep end of the pool. But also his matchups. Why isn't he taking fights like Dylan Dennis or Gary Tonin in one or Jack Swagger or MVP? I think one of the reasons that Aaron Pico is getting thrown to the deep end might be because there's so much hype around him that giving him kid gloves is going to seem like preferential treatment. And they might have also been paying him way too much, so they need to start seeing a return on their investments. It's similar to how they're not giving Eddie Alvarez any easy fights over and one. They might say, hey, we paid you a lot of money, either sink or swim. And with Aaron Pico, Scott Coker might be thinking, listen, you come in with all these accolades, you're going to have to prove it sooner than later. I've also heard that it's Pico himself asking for these tough matchups. He doesn't want the easy fights. So maybe he is not the best person to manage his own career. We also assume good wrestlers always turn into great MMA fighters. And you know, probably 90% do. But there's still a 10% that doesn't. Pico is only 22. So is he one of that 10% that isn't going to transition well? Maybe. Because even though he's only 22, he's taken so much brain damage in his fights already. 
And who knows how much damage he's taken in boxing and also just in training and sparring. Now, if you look at those fighters who've had spotty records to then go on and become monsters, when you look at their early losses, it was like a submission loss or decision losses. So they didn't take the same amount of damage that Pico did early on. So can he even rebound at this point with all the damage he's taken? I think if Aaron Pico is going to try and make a better run of his Bellator career, he is going to have to take the long road back and maybe get matched up against other fighters that are more friendly to that style and can help him rebuild. Meaning maybe he gets put up against submission grapplers or wrestlers. So that way he can test his wrestling chops, make sure that he's solid in all areas. And even if the fight remains standing, he's not at as much of a disadvantage or risk of getting knocked out. So you put him against somebody who is still a good and tough opponent, but just can't hurt him on the feet. So that way he can round out that skill set, maybe work on his timing, his movement, and make sure that he stays disciplined and doesn't get engaged in brawls. But in thinking about his overall career, because of the way he's lost, I wonder how Pico's family feels about this. Like, do they want their son to keep getting hurt? It's interesting to know because from what I remember, Aaron Pico comes from money. His family is very entrenched in the LA community. So Aaron Pico has other assets. Yeah, so that's another factor in his career. The way he's losing, he's probably going to have a sit down with his family. And so as far as future goes, who knows? But breaking down what's going on with Aaron Pico, from all accounts, he trains super hard in the gym. So it has nothing to do with his work ethic. And he's also trained at the body shop, aka Rain, and now Jackson Wink. And he also does strength and conditioning with the best coaches money can buy. And he also did boxing with Freddie Roach. And he's been boxing about as long as he's been wrestling. So Pico is well-trained and his wrestling is stellar. But as Paul mentioned about his MMA skills, Pico still can't read his opponents. He still can't see the overall MMA picture in a fight. And he still can't program his opponents to react the way he wants. He's not a matador. He's still a freak athlete. What I mean by that is, instead of using craftiness, he's relying on his speed and his power. But also, just like in his last fight, Pico still freezes against big strikes. He doesn't seem to have the right MMA instincts. And that's why I guess people talk about amateur fights. He needs to develop it. But this is easy to say. Maybe in the smaller regional fights, if he were to try to do it, who'd want to fight Aaron Pico? Maybe his career was doomed to begin with because he came in with too much hype. I remember hearing about him being an MMA star when he was like 13. I think he was already signed to a MMA sports agency at that time. So with all that said and the amount of damage he's taken, I hope he takes a year off of fighting and maybe just train or reassess. And also take different matchups. Maybe he needs a new agent or manager or he needs people around him to protect him from himself. Even though he wants to fight monsters, he needs people to be like, no, 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 we got to build you up. He needs to take that Gary Tonin, Dylan Dennis, Jack Swagger MVP approach for a while. Because even though in regional shows, if he would have fought there, yeah, maybe he would have had a hard time fighting opponents. 
But Bellator doesn't seem to be having a hard time finding fighters to feed to their up-and-coming stars, people who are just coming off the meatpacking plant, people who are working a full-time job, not training, and then getting a Bellator fight. They can do that. They've done that. So why can't they do it for him? I think maybe it's just that if they give Aaron Pico anything other than a tough fight, they're going to be seen as coddling, which is weird because you're already doing it. Why not just do it for this guy? What's the difference? Well, if people thought Pico was being coddled after this knockout, I think a lot of people are going to be more understanding if he takes some easier fights for a while and maybe more understanding if he takes a break for a while. At the very least, a minimum of six to eight months. Treat it, I don't know, like a pregnancy where, hey, I have a kid, so I'm going to be gone for a bit. I'll see you sometime in 2020. And I think that about wraps it up for today. Paul, do you have any upcoming previews you're working on? So some of the previews that I'm working on is Hinato Moikano versus Korean Zombie, Francis Ngannou versus Dos Santos, and Lobato Jr. versus Gegar Musasi over in Bellator. You'll find all of Paul's previews on the Patreon. If you are not already supporting us, please consider it. If you haven't joined our Facebook group and you'd like to, I'll add a link in the show notes. We also have some great new interviews coming up, so watch out for those. But otherwise, so long and goodbye. Take care.